Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irene Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I am Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers. Today, we have special guest L.L. Kirshner with us, an award-winning screenwriter and author who is here to talk with us about her book that came out recently, Blissful Thinking, a memoir of overcoming the wellness revolution. Let's chat about her unique outlook on life and love. We are fortunate to have with us today L.L. Kirshner. The popular screenwriter and author has had her work in print in the Washington Post, Bomb Magazine, and The Rumpus, and her short films have appeared in film festivals internationally. Plus, she had a brief stint as a dating columnist for an alternative news weekly. The author of the book, American Lady Creature, My Change in the Middle East, she just had her latest book, Blissful Thinking, A Memoir of Overcoming the Wellness Revolution, come out. LL, welcome. Can you tell our listeners about Blissful Thinking and how its impetus was the moment your husband decided to end your marriage over the phone, making you afraid to fall back into your previous substance addiction? Hi, thank you so much for having me here. And yes, that was one impetus. The real impetus was when I landed in India and miraculously quit smoking because what I immediately thought was, if this could happen without any input from me, what other miracles might happen if I tried a little bit, which ultimately became the problem because trying a little bit, it's not really part of the addict's mindset. <laughs> you sort of throw yourself at things. But yes, the, the journey uh, began because I had had a boyfriend who drowned when I was in my early 20s. And we were both sober at the time. But after he drowned, I went just I spiraled down, down, down until I picked up again. And when I found myself alone and brokenhearted a second time in my life, I felt the same. The heart does not make distinctions and say, well, that was death. This is divorce. You should, you know, the heart just wants what the heart wants. And I was afraid that I would end up on that same spiral because I didn't know he was about to pull the trigger on a divorce. So I thought, gosh, what else have I been missing? And so I decided I would take this time out. Hence went to India to study yoga and meditation because I thought, yes, that'll make me look productive. My parents owned a gym. I knew wellness like that was all good. I had always smoked. I had always kind of hated smoking, but I couldn't cut it out. Got to India and boom, just stopped. So that's that was really what propelled kind of the frenzy was those two things. This idea that there must be some fix here and that I needed to not be miserable or I would potentially go back out. So that's interesting because there, I mean, those are both big momentous changes, I guess all three moving as well um, in your life. And so I'm thinking, well, we'll probably come back to each of those, but maybe where I'll start is asking you about your substance use history, because you had mentioned that at the time that you unfortunately, that your boyfriend passed away, that you guys had both been sober. But a time prior to that, you had struggled with addiction. 
Yeah, I first started, I, I mean, I've had people sort of disbelieve this in this day and age, but you know, I'm a Gen Xer and I started drinking and using when, well, I started drinking when I was 10 and I started using when I was about 12 and I supported my habit with babysitting money. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that that just continued. And, and when I got to college, it, it got even worse. All bets were off. I did not get grounded. My parents did not send me to rehab. I had had, I had run away from home. I'd had a bleeding ulcer. I kept having to drop out of college because I was being institutionalized. And I was paying my own way through college. So I was very frustrated by this, you know, my inability to sort of move forward. And Again, it was somebody else who pointed it out to me, really, because I was fearing that I was going back into a mental hospital and I didn't want to do that again. And this woman said, Lisa, you're an alcoholic and a drug addict. And I, I was blown away because I had never considered that that was the problem because I knew I had read Go Ask Alice when I was a kid. And I knew if you were an alcoholic or a drug addict, you were not supposed to drink or use. And that just sounded like a fate worse than death to me. So I avoided even thinking about that, but it was the right time, right moment. And I, you know, my next question was, well, what am I supposed to do about that? And uh, she suggested 12 step recovery. And that is what really changed my life. I don't know where I would be if I hadn't gotten off that track, which was, again, by the age of 19, we can, <laughs> bleeding ulcer, mental hospitalizations, running away from home. Uh, I had had alcoholic jaundice. Like I was a, I was what you might consider a low bottom drunk, even though I was very young when I first came in. And it didn't get better when I went back out after my boyfriend died. I was a little bit older, um, but everything that had happened before just happened faster and harder. So it was not, not good. Yeah. So by the time that your husband says he wants a divorce, you have now twice been through realizing addiction is not good for me. And I, I'm very afraid of falling back into that because I saw all the ways it wasn't good for me. Then I saw the same thing happen again, as you said, harder and faster. And so I can certainly understand why you were motivated to not fall back into that to try to be intentional about it. But I also have another question for you, which is given that you saw the harms of addiction and were able to become sober on a couple of different occasions, what was different about smoking? What allowed it to linger on until the time that you got to India? And then what you kind of already said, wow, if these things can happen out of my control, what could I do with things that are in my control? What exactly made you decide now's the time to try to stop with smoking and what, what condition? Oh, I didn't try. That was the whole point. I literally, I landed and the addiction was lifted. I, I viewed it as a grace moment, right? And I will say in terms of why that persisted, and I, I think that this is true, smoking had been my longest running addiction because even though I started drinking when I was 10, I could smoke more than I could drink. And when I first got sober, I mean, smoking was very, I mean, it happened in meetings. I would go through four, I would count. I knew I would go through four cigarettes at a meeting. That's an hour. That's like, <laughs> That is a lot of smoking. Sometimes that might be all the smoking that I would do all day. Like I said, I never, it's like, I kind of always had this love hate relationship with smoking. It was just this, it was this addictive thing that I couldn't seem to, to break, even though I never smoked all that much. So I quit smoking and it would be like, you know, I wouldn't suddenly taste food or find myself 
completely able to walk upstairs or transformed in some way, it would be more like I'd be driving down the highway and I would see someone driving in the opposite direction. And I think she's smoking. Why can't I, you know, that kind of addiction. So, you know, and there's a ritual to it. And I also truly believe that it was a buffer. I used it as a shield between me and other people. And when I hit India, I think I was truly ready to transform on some level on a you know spiritual level because i learned about this indian goddess named kali i don't know if you're familiar with the hindu pantheon at all but she was the ultimate slayer of evil demons she used weapons to to knock them down and these demons apparently when they would die the reason that they hadn't been defeated by the other gods is that every time their blood would spill to the earth new demon clones would sprout up in their place. And she used her tongue to lap up all the blood and she managed to rid the world of this evil in this in this one legend. But following her apparently, at least according to my Hindu philosophy teacher, was going to change my life. And I was, you know, a lot of people are a little bit repulsed by her appearance. She's got a necklace of skulls. She's got all these weapons. She looks very fierce. And I was immediately like, I want to follow her. <laughs> So I think I was just ready, even if I couldn't have articulated it in that way in that moment, I just felt very ready. And I, w I was ready to get rid of the, the buffers between me and the rest of humanity. How did you go from being engaged in practices such as yoga and meditation, which I, I think a lot of people do those things, but they still struggle with them or they feel like those things don't necessarily take them to where they'd like to go. So how, how did you kind of take it to the next step? Were you by the, I wouldn't say the end of the journey because the journey never ends, but by a pivotal moment in the journey, right? You, you sort of realize that uh, if I'm remembering correctly from the book, that you have to meet life from a position of worth, right? So it seems like that was kind of an important part of the journey. Can you talk a little bit about how these practices or maybe other things also led you to reach. Irina, that is a great question because, and I don't know if I talk about it so much in the second book, but in the first book, the first book is kind of, you know, being in Qatar, a Persian Gulf country and getting a divorce. And I also went through menopause at the age of starting at the age of 38 while I was living in a country that viewed women primarily or valued women primarily as wives and mothers. And it was a very strange place to feel like I needed to redefine myself as a woman. And part of that was also, I had become very much in, engaged with my work. And when the, the ex left, I, I didn't have much of anything except yoga. And I threw myself more into those practices, but I would never have gone to yoga, except that I lived in Qatar. And the only time that you could, the, the only time that I could do any kind of physical activity was when the gyms held ladies hours. That's another thing, you know, women and men are separated and, uh, you know, men are only allowed to go to the grocery store at certain times. And the gyms had lady hours. Well, the gyms held ladies hours while this lady was at work. So I couldn't go to the regular gym. The only option available to me was this yoga class, which is how I ended up in a yoga class. I was also, because of stress and because of all the work that I was doing, I was wearing 
wrist braces and knee braces. And the doctor added a neck brace. And I was like, I look like I've been in an accident. I have to do something. Again, my parents owned a gym. So I knew that physical activity would be a way out of this stress-induced you know, body rigidity. And so I went to yoga. And you know, I had a lot of struggles with it. Hence this second book, right? I had a lot of struggles with those other practices, like the meditation. And it was sort of this idea that I was going to find bliss. But I, again, Michelle, you, you, you nailed it immediately. This desire not to relapse coupled with the, the journey that I was on, Irina, which you pointed out, I loved how you put it. You know, you have to meet, you have to meet that place where the, your self-worth meets uh, the challenges of life. And I knew that I had to change in some way. And, and so I just kept trying different things. And ultimately I feel like that is what was the healing lesson. So there's a part in the in the book where I talk about cults. And a couple of years ago, Amanda Montell wrote a book because uh, I visited a number of cults. And, and when I read Amanda Montell's book, Cultish, about how she defines cults, which is, I mean, she's a linguist and she basically says any group that cloisters itself off with its own set of language is a cult. And I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. You know, it goes beyond sort of the weird wardrobe and the, you know, <laughs> the live-in housing. But I visited some actual bona fide cults while I was there. And and I do think it was this kind of love of language that my mother instilled in me that kind of kept me from going in full bore. Because, you know, I hear people talking in these hokey... This is even true with 12-step recovery. When people sort of talk in these trite phrases and hack sayings, I get a little turned off. I'm just like, oh no, <laughs> that's not going to work for me. But what, what it enabled me to do also was to visit this broad array of communities and really take something great from it. Because let's face it, cults start for a reason. People are hungry for spiritual solutions and we see this. And, and the reason that I kept on with this title Actually, um, I had given up on it for a while when I started writing screenplays, but be, is because of the sort of proliferation of wellness influencers that are out there ready to tell you what's wrong with you 24-7. They have no credentials. They have no expertise. They'll tell you that they do. They know how you feel and they're ready to stare directly into that camera and just understand you. And that's very addictive when you're in that place, because at least for me, I often felt very alone. I was a woman living outside the US, so I didn't have my friends, my family. So I was isolated in that way. And I kind of feel lucky that I had to really go to the influencers. They weren't available to come at me on the internet. But because of this, you know, kind of skeptical nature that I have, I was able to take what the good parts of those things were. And I learned something at all the places that I went to, at least all the places that are included in the book. I went to a lot of places that aren't included in the book. Some of which were great. Like I did a, I did this Ayurvedic Panchakarma, which was really great. That's not in the book. It's not that interesting to read about, I think. Like, I don't want to hear about your juice cleanse. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You know, we were curious about that because Obviously, some forms of spirituality and centering are well-known, commonly practiced, things like yoga, meditation. Nobody, I mean, I don't think most people are looking at those and being like, 
but is there a downside? Versus like with cults, you know, you're like, mm, I don't know that there's an upside or, but it is, it's like you said, you know, that sense of belonging, that sense of community, that sense of there's an answer, just follow this path. And so much when things feel out of our control, we just want to know, tell me how to do it and that things are gonna be okay if I do this. So, so cults do, as you said, and, and not only cults, but like you had mentioned, just so many people who claim to be purveyors of wellness and spirituality trade on that idea. So I would love to hear more about your experiences engaging with these cults. I know there was a sex cult involved in there too, right? There is a sex cult involved in there. <laughs> that was honestly, I don't think if I hadn't gone to the sex cult that I would be with my current partner at all, because I really took a lot of that one. And I, I think that's a, a pretty dangerous cultish atmosphere. Uh, you know, I did want to say that there actually can be downsides to meditation. I think that's one of the biggest myths that there is. Sil sitting in silent meditation, if you have an anxious personality, say, oh, I don't know me, it can actually have a detrimental effect. And I had no idea that this was the case. I went to not one, but two Vipassana retreats where you sit in silence for days on end. And in 2017, Brown University did a study that cataloged the negative consequences that this type of silent meditation could have. And that was a, a revelation to me because I didn't realize that I was, I was so convinced that there was something was wrong with me. Even the fact that I didn't enjoy sitting in meditation felt like more evidence that something was wrong with me. So this journey is, is a, a journey of really discovering that I don't need to be on a constant quest for self-improvement, that I can just allow life to happen. And again, to meet that meet that journey and so that my self-worth can can emerge right rather than trying to constantly change myself to what i think other people will want to hear or see or do or be that's just a an exercise in frustration and when i when i went to the sex cult to answer that part of the question what happened was i ended up meeting a guy. Now I went thinking, okay, I am, I am just here for the healing because Osho is this community in Pune, India, the, that is named after the eponymous guru Osho, who is known to many here now a little bit more because of that Netflix documentary, Wild Wild Country. And he was Sri Bhagwan Rajneesh and they called themselves Rajneeshis. I don't know if either of you watch that show. Interesting. I, I kind of love those documentaries about cults. And some of it is because I've spent so much time at different cults and gotten things out of them. And I like it when they show actually what the positive part of the cult experience is because it's very easy to otherize members of a cult and say, well, I'd never do that. How did those weird people end up in that position? Yada, yada, yada. I don't think that's a, a a constructive way to look at that experience because you build this idea that you're safe from that. And then the next thing you know, you're following Teal Swan down the internet loophole. <laughs> so anyway, um, back to the sex cult, I got into a relationship with this guy there and we ended up in this dynamic that was exactly like the dynamic in my marriage, super passive aggressive, except he was the aggressive one and I was the passive one. And I had this amazing realization 
and I use this in this yoga workshop that I've been teaching to go along with this uh, book tour, right? Observe yourself as if you were another character in this dynamic that you feel stuck in, right? I had this realization that there was nothing I could have done differently to save my marriage. I couldn't have done it. Both people have to really want to change. And also when you're the passive one, you have all the power. I was just sitting there and I would watch him spin out and I would think, wow, okay. <laughs> you're talking. It's interesting to you, I guess. <laughs> Because I, I could not have cared what he was going to say. I wasn't going to change my mind or think any differently. And it was really a revelation. It, it really changed things for me in terms of allowing myself to forgive myself. And it was after that that I was able to see. Because what we all try to sit and discover, or some of us maybe inherently know this, but but people always talked about this concept of an inner Buddha. Have you guys heard of that? The inner Buddha is this, you know, center of, of stillness and love and light that it's at the core of every being. And I would sit and I did not find an inner Buddha. I would find an inner bitch. And she was pissed. And I was concerned about this. And when I came uh, to this realization that uh, maybe nothing about me was broken, maybe nothing was wrong, I was able to finally drop all these stories that covered over that, because really that is what was in the way of me and being aligned with my, you know, sort of truest version of self. And I was astonished. I was like, oh my God, there it is. I have that inner essence that is love and light, that is optimism, that that is, my God, happy. And it was a huge game changer for me. And I don't think that I would have gotten there without this series of things. I'm a slow learner. A lot of people can do this without all of this, <laughs> all of this stuff. And I think a lot of people also, for me, I thought my first marriage was pretty great because I didn't have any experience except my parents' marriage, which I thought was pretty terrible. So, you know, what do we accept as normal in our relationships is the question. And I would have been probably still married in that relationship. I had no idea, which I have a much better idea now of what it was like to have a true partner, somebody who had your back, who would show up for you, who would challenge you, but also not challenge you, you know, the whole gamut of experience that you get in a healthier relationship. So love and dating are important themes in, in the book and in your life. Kind of coming out of your first marriage, what what kind of view did you take on dating? And also you, you did try online dating at one point, which of course I want to hear more about given that that's a big theme on our show. So how, uh, how did you experience that? And what was that particular piece of the journey like until I understand you found uh, love in Florida, even though you had been warned that that was never, <laughs> yeah, never going to happen. Uh, so, right, by a psychic. Um, and so uh, what, what was that kind of arc like? And if you could speak to the online dating piece uh, as part of that, that would be great. When I started to be ready to date again, and it was a while. It wasn't a while before I, I had sex again, because... I don't know uh, if you've experienced this yet or heard about it, but something can happen when you start to go into menopause and you end up with this 
sex drive that's like a teenage boy. Only you suddenly have, you know, more money and more access to do something about it. So um, I didn't, I, I, it's not as if I was, you know, some sort of abstinent nun uh, that was, you know, running around trying to uh, feel better. But I knew that I wasn't ready for a relationship until I got to this point living in New York. And I saw these people just sort of having an intimate moment at the grocery store, as you do, you know, in New York, everything's on display. I have seen everything on the streets of New York. But I really realized that, oh, I miss that. And I came to this other realization, which was despite how badly that marriage had gone, I wanted, I liked being married. And I did want to be married again. Although by the time I got to the end of the second book, I was like, nah, I don't care if I never get married again. Like I was fully ready not to, because I had become much more comfortable with myself because Irina, there was a part of me that really believed that having a relationship was some sort of proof, some societal proof that I had overcome whatever was so wrong with me that caused my husband to run away. And, and when I married the first time, I thought it was, I needed to show that, you know, my relapse wasn't sort of the defining moment. I don't know. I, there's always some sort of rationalization in my head. And when I, when I started to go online, it was, it was funny because I realized, oh my gosh, I have not been on the market since like star 69 made calling and hanging up impossible, right? Cause you could just star 69 and figure out who had just called you and hung up. I don't know if you ever did that. Probably not. Oh, yeah, definitely in the teenage oh. years. But I had been, I had written this dating column. So I had all of this knowledge that I had accumulated six years, over six years of writing this dating column. And I had ended up marrying an editor of a paper that I had pitched the column to, by the way. <laughs> so even though I had been single for part of it, I had been, you know, in a couple for most of it. And I had learned a lot about what people say and versus what they do, because my thing was I would get these applications and then I would match people up and I would send them on a blind date and then I would interview them afterward. That, cause that so wouldn't work now because everybody would just be Googling whoever they were meeting. Um, <laughs> so I would then in the, inter in the course of the interviews, I would learn so many things that hadn't been on the application or that, ha you know, they would, the way that they would describe something was very different from the way somebody else would describe something. Anyway, and so I took all of this into building an online profile, which was ended up being super constructed. And it wasn't until a good friend of mine basically said, listen, you don't want to be in a relationship. You don't have time for a relationship. You should just go on an adult website and find someone to have sex with. It wasn't until I did that, that I started to have some actual relationships. And the reason was because there I was completely honest. I had to, I had gotten to a point where I had realized you're right, Willie. I don't have time for a relationship. I'm trying to write this book. This is my first book. I was teaching yoga. I was uh, touring yoga workshops and doing all these things. And so I thought, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go on this adult site. And because I was completely candid, I had relationships that were so much better. And that also was happening simultaneous to my spiritual journey. Because I'm not really interested in a spirituality that doesn't encompass my sex life or my office life or whatever, you know, it needs to work in every area. Do you want to tell us more about the dating column days? So, uh, and, and like you were saying, the couples you matched up, did you feel like it was a better dating world back then? Or was it just 
difficult in different ways than than uh, what people are encountering today how do you how do you view the modern dating world and the I got I, I love this question because people always ask, well, here's what I found wherever I move. And I've lived in a lot of different places. Now people always say oh, dating is the worst here. No matter where you are, it's the worst. It is just hard. It is so hard. And what the internet has done has given us access to more selection. And I don't know about you, but I think about myself. I'm, I have a cold. I go into the, you know, the big box store and I'm trying to decide, okay, do I have congestion and a cough or a runny nose and a, a stuffed lungs? Like, you know, they're so specific. I can't even figure out what my own symptoms are while I'm trying to look at those boxes and online dating is kind of the same. And to some extent it is a numbers game and it's unfortunate. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I've been on a date where I am sure that guy is swiping while we're on the date. I mean, you know, the choice is a lot, but I don't think it was, I don't think it was any easier than, I don't think meeting people in real life is really all that different until you are able to be fully candid and fully aligned. And I, I think that's a, that's a hard process on your own to do it with somebody else. It's even harder. So you were doing that column back in the late 90s. We know the 90s is having like a resurgence now in a lot of ways, fashion and all of that. And we, in the not too distant past, had a guest on this show, the comedian Allie Goldberg, and she does a show where basically, and it's called Love Isn't Blind, and it has a male like a bachelor um, who cannot speak to the bachelorette, so like three male bachelors, I think. And um, they cannot speak to the bachelorette, but Allie, the host of the show, can like go through their phones, call their moms. Um, they, The audience can ask them certain questions and they have to answer. And in, in some ways it's a throwback but like with modern twists to, to some of those older dating shows. And you know, it's interesting to see the cycles that that we go through in different areas of life, but for us with this podcast, specifically with dating, you know, I remember when the apps first came out, I was just disgusted by the idea of them. I was like, this feels gross. You're swiping through people's pictures like like it's just a game, like like a card. You're swiping them like cards and you just want to see what the next one is. And then I finally came around to it, I guess, out of desperation because I wasn't meeting anyone anywhere else. And um, I was like, let me try these. Then I really liked the apps. For me, I came into them at a time where they weren't like the absolute trash that maybe they have devolved into. But I had some really positive experiences on the apps. But by now, you know, lots of scammers, con people have found their way on there. And like you said, there's just so many choices. Like my first impression wasn't wrong about it's it's dehumanizing in a lot of ways. And you forget to look at people as people. Then it hit kind of a heyday where lots of people were meeting their partners online. And now it seems like the pulse is lots of people are sick of the apps. They either want significant changes, updates to the apps that address some of these significant problems that have come up, or they just want something else entirely. And so 
coming back to this idea of a 90s throwback, do you think there'd be room today for something like what you used to do back then? And could you tell us more about, you had mentioned in talking to these potential suitors, you'd learn much more about them than what they had written on their profiles. I'm curious, any takeaways you have from that process of interviewing them versus just reading whatever they had written? And also, did you have successes? Did that work out a lot of the time? Do you know? Oh, I did have some successes, you know, and I, I honestly considered that if I called and they were still in the same room the next morning after their <laughs> date, because I tried to call them as quickly afterward as, as possible. I do feel like, so here are some takeaways. So for instance, if the guy writes in his profile, you know, that he, he likes to take long walks and Netflix and chill, he's probably really cheap, you, you know, what I mean? <laughs> and if they have a lot of pictures of themselves partying, they're probably a really big partier, even if they write, you know, moderately to not at all, you know, it, it, some of it is so, it's so blatant. And, and a lot of times it's just different because what they are talking about now is very different from what they were talking about before. I mean, men would often write height and weight proportionate as a requirement, right? Again, this was in the, the you know, the nineties, the early two thousands. And they would also often describe themselves as better than average looking. Whereas these women, knockouts, and they would say, you know, I'm average looking or whatever. And I would think, are you looking in a mirror? You know, there was just a real difference in their approach and what they seemed to feel that they, and this is speaking generally, of course, and, and what they seemed to feel they had to offer. And that kind of gets back to me talking before about feeling aligned and knowing my worth and knowing my value is it's something that I think does not come super naturally to a lot of people who identify as women. I, I think I don't, you know, I, now I do think the complexities of gender is another piece to take into it. And that was not something that was an issue back in those days. But I think that the apps certainly deal with that to some extent. And I know that the way that, I mean, I set up, I would set up same sex couples, but that's about as, you know, that was as outre as it, as it got really. And it's not because people were all that different than I believe it just wasn't part of the the conversation at large. And so I'm glad that a lot of those things have changed. But what I, what I really, I mean, my favorite story was this one guy, I called him and I had, I think I talked to the woman, you know, she'd had a nice time. They'd had a nice date and I talked to him and he reported, you know, all the nice date things. And then the, my last question was always, so do you think that you'll go out again? And he was like, no. And I was like, I was shocked. It's like, what? Why? What happened? And he's like, off the record. And I love it when people say that. I was like, okay, this is, this is, you can go off the record. It's fine. This is not the Nuremberg trials. This is a, a fluffy dating column, right? And uh, he was, what he realized as a result of going on the date was that he missed the girlfriend that he had broken up with. She had gone to Thailand. She was a photographer. She went on assignment. She'd asked him to go with. He didn't want to quit his job. He was a reporter actually for a local paper like a weekly that was not an alternative news weekly, but like a little supplement into part of the daily anyway. So he decided he was going to quit his job and move to Thailand. And I was like, yes, that's the best. And then many years later I heard from him and they had gotten married and done the whole thing. So, I mean, that was, that was great. 
Um, yes, and then in a roundabout I, way. Right. I was in Pittsburgh well, just last weekend and I had a little book launch party there and I met one of the people that I had, one of the people that I'd set up on a date came to the event, not with his current husband, but he felt like, you know, that helped him get ready to meet his current husband. He, maybe he was just blowing sunshine up my butt. I don't know, but <laughs> it was nice of him to say. It was nice to hear. He didn't have so. to seek you out. He probably did because it was true. That's nice. So we need to hear now how you did find the love in Florida. Was it with a Florida uh, man? No, actually. Um, well, yes and no. So I was only coming to Florida temporarily. I had uh, bought a condo here as an investment property, sort of thinking, well, I cannot live in New York City for forever, right? Unless I, you know, become massively wealthy. Or here, really what had happened was that I had decided I was going to sell the house that I had been renting out in Pittsburgh, which helped supplement my income as a freelance writer and a yoga teacher, right? And it was because I never, after my mom died, I was like, I don't never want to go back to Pittsburgh to live. So I decided I'd buy this place in Florida because then I can always take a little trip to Florida and I can write it off on my taxes kind of a thing. And, you know, it's eminently rentable. So I had bought a condo, had to live there for a year, and I was just doing Match.com because it was fun to meet new people. I, again, was not so concerned about finding someone that I was going to be with. And I get this message, and this is right around my year is sort of coming to an end, and the election had just happened. The 2016 election had just happened. And I had gotten this really gross vibe. And I thought, I got to shut down this match profile because I just, I can't even right now with anybody. And I go on and there's this message. And it, it the first line was nice use of the parenthetical because I had used a parenthetical in the open to my profile. And that immediately caught my attention. I was like, who's this guy who not only knows what a parenthetical is, that he can recognize it and then use it correctly in a sentence. And so I was smitten. And he, not in a stocky way, proceeded to read all of everything I'd ever written, including my first book, which had just come out at that point. And I... I love that. I'd had, I'd met guys that actually stopped dating me because they were afraid that I was going to write about them. And I was just like, well, just don't be a dick. You know, <laughs> that'll, <laughs> that'll keep me from writing about you. And yeah, so we, that's how we met. And it was incredible. I mean, he's very interesting because he had some similar life experiences to me in that when he was 10, he moved from the north to the deep south. And he moved from Schenectady, New York to Hendersonville, Tennessee, which is where Taylor Swift went to high school, just by the way. And Taylor Swift went to my same elementary school. So we have that in common, oh. too. Not that uh, either of us was anywhere near Taylor Swift's age. <laughs> So I was also She's just following thinking us. about her because you were like, will you write about me? I'm like, she would in her songs if you're a butthead. So, right. Many exactly. Connections. So true. Anyway, so, you know, we we just that I think was really part of me looking at the world differently, because when I made that big move, I went from being like a very popular kid to being like super unpopular kid. And we had moved a lot when I was growing up and I had had this experience of my, you know, and everywhere I went, maybe I was popular, maybe I was unpopular and I didn't change. It was just all this superficial stuff about me that people would judge. And it just changes, I think, how you look 
at how you seriously you take, I don't want to say how seriously you take things or take yourself. That's not quite it, but it does alter your outlook on life. Yeah. If to be judged like that. Yeah. Like, do you mean something along the lines of like other people's impressions? It's something similar to what you had said earlier, but like other people's impressions aren't objective truth. It's about finding the right other people who are compatible with you, who bring out the best in you, things like that. And, and I would say that leads into something else we were curious to ask you about, because there's lots of research evidence that talks about like just so many health and wellness benefits of having social supports in your journey that you describe in your book. And just, I don't know, it may be outside of your book as well, but what is the role that other people or communities played in your journey? And what advice would you give others who are looking to find themselves about also finding beneficial connections along the way and any advice for warning signs that might help them steer clear of of harmful connections, people who aren't going to be of help to them? Hmm. Well, people, for me, other people have always played a huge role because as much as I'm a writer, in other words, I figure out things by writing them. I also figure out things by talking to other people and not only getting feedback, but even just the act of verbalizing thoughts or experiences that I'm having. And I really value friendships for that. But you can't force a friendship. I mean, one of the most painful lessons from my book is a friendship that I lost. So one of the key friendships, and I lost it because I violated what he set out clearly as expectations from the beginning of meeting. He had pretty well-defined boundaries and I kind of abused them regularly. And good for him for doing that as painful as it was. And although I didn't write about this in the book, what that helped me recognize was where I was letting people abuse boundaries with me and to stop doing that. So for instance, I used to write movie reviews and I had gone to see this movie with this group of friends and we came out and I was sort of taught, I was like, let's talk about the movie. And this one guy is like, do you have to have an opinion on everything? And I was like, it's kind of my job, you asshat. (laughs) And that I really saw a lack of support from that particular person. And then I could see it in other people. And I honestly think that's another big part of the journey. It's, it's, again, it's what we are, what are we willing to accept in terms of a normal relationship? Uh, The family dynamic I grew up in was not at all supportive. And that's what I was accustomed to in relationships. And I didn't want that anymore. So I had to make a lot of changes, which meant ending some relationships and, and being open to new ones. And believing in that law of the universe, which is that nature abhors a vacuum. And I think sometimes that's why we sustain or maintain relationships that aren't serving us because we're afraid or, you know, certainly I was, well, if I don't have this person, then I won't have a a friend to go to movies with or whatever it is. And trusting that that person would appear or something else will appear, something will something will take its place. Does that make sense? Yes, I think that's helpful. And then I guess looking to the signs that if you're not happy in a relationship or do feel like disrespected, like your friend did, you know, that it's okay to, and and you should honor your own standards. And while it might be hard to separate from a friendship, 
if you have the rationale for why you would to to follow your own plan that you had laid out there. Right. I do. I do think that's very. I think that's very hard. Toying around in the back of my mind, I want to write about this somehow, but it hasn't sort of gelled in my mind how you deal with toxicity in friendships because I don't. I don't feel like that's a very common theme and 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 it's almost as bad as the love trope where everybody has a happily ever after you know the friend trope is everybody has these friends who are wildly supportive and they buy each other like the perfect gift and i got you sis like all the way and some of us we don't have that experience but the key is that we do have to take responsibility for creating that experience. So if I'm in a relate and you know, again, I was really shocked. I was also doing the artist way. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but I was going through that process. It's, you know, where you start to look at your life and how you can make room for your own creativity and to invite more creativity. And some of it is to get rid of toxic relationships. And I was astonished at how many that I had. (laughs) What is your advice for people who are feeling a little bit lost and trying to make changes in their lives. Maybe they don't like how things are right now, but they don't really know where to start to, to find their way. And as you said, I mean, it might be different things for different people and you might have to try different things, but what are some tools or books or resources or things that are kind of your, your go-tos, your favorites, the the place where you like to send people Mm -hmm. who really don't know where to begin. Mm -hmm. I, there, well, there's the traditional classic therapy. That's always that's always good. I've gotten a lot out of therapy myself. I have also gotten a lot out of working with coaches because with a coach, you can get spot advice on a particular thing. You, you may reach a certain point where if you go into a therapist's office and you have to spend a lot of time, okay, this was my relationship with my mother and my father and my brother and my sister and the huda huda, you know, and you just feel like really I, I'm trying to get my mindset right on my career, you know, that might not be. The, like if that's what you're unsatisfied with, that might not be the right way to go um, or dating or whatever it is that you want to get that uh, sort of quick hit fix on. But also I do really think that slowing down and getting out in nature, I mean, I know it sounds really like not wildly revolutionary advice, but I do think that during the lockdown, I, I'm somebody who hates running. I have always hated running <laughs> because the minute I start trying to run, all I feel is pain. And, you know, I'm not a boot camp person either. I don't want to be yelled at. Like, I, <laughs> I don't want to be miserable in order to feel good. This just doesn't seem like it makes sense. But during lockdown, I started jogging, like reluctantly, but I had to do something. I had had knee surgery and I had been doing physical therapy and I couldn't do physical therapy. So it's like, I knew I had to do something. So I'm not talking about like I was out there doing a marathon. I'm talking like, literally I would go a couple of blocks starting at a fast pace. And then, you know, and now I jog and I was amazed what running does in very much the same way. I find that I discovered through Ashtanga yoga, it's repetitive. You're not doing anything new. And so your mind has the ability to just be sort of open to what's happening. And I honestly, I love listening to podcasts like On Being with Krista Tippett or Dharma Talks by Tara Brock, those kinds of things while I'm running. And then I, I get lots of ideas and I'll 
you know, write things down. And there are many, there are many types of podcasts and things that people might be interested in, but you know, I'm, I'm always interested in what spiritual thinkers have to say. (laughs) Would you like to close out today by telling us about one of your newest other projects, a novel called Florida Girls? So we can maybe have a little bit of a teaser about that. Oh, I would love to. So we were talking a little bit at the beginning about how memoir is very much an exercise in bearing your truth on the page. And I do think that the best memoirs are about really challenging events. I'm not a big fan of the trope memoir. Uh, You know, there are some memoirs that are very gimmicky. I prefer stories that are obviously very challenging. I don't want to have that kind of life at this point in my life, but I still love writing and I'm still concerned about issues. And so during the pandemic, I turned to writing this novel called Florida Girls and it's it's out on submission now, but it's about this team of touring swimsuit models. It was a real thing at the close of World War II, but in my book, they end up taking over the Tampa mob. So <laughs> the the reason is I was driven to write it because this is while the Supreme Court was like slowly clamping down on women's rights. And I imagined it must be the way a lot of people felt at the as World War II was ending and they were they'd been in this situation that was kind of terrible, but they were picturing their men coming home and losing what little rights they had had. And so they were willing to do things. They they were driven to do things that they would not have otherwise been driven to do. And also to really shine a light on, these are the repercussions of not having full autonomy over your body as a woman. Ta-da. Great. Well, that sounds fascinating. We'll be looking forward to that. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, LL. We've really enjoyed it. Oh, I have really enjoyed talking to you too. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. It's a great topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. We also appreciate support to defray our costs to run the podcast. You can help us out at Swipe Strangers on coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Frini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kuyujuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye.